The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman, uh, and my guest this hour is Paul DeSisto. Uh, he is a, a certified financial analyst, director, and senior portfolio manager at M&R Capital Management. Uh, welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks very much, Jordan. Appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Um, let's just start off with your background first and uh, how you got to where you are today at M&R Capital Management. Well, I've been in the business now for about uh, 25 years, quarter of a century. I started actually in retail back in 1987 in in Boston at a small regional firm called Mosley Securities Corp. Been through a few iterations itself, was taken over by Leg Mason in 1990 after the uh, 87 crash and the subsequent problems there with the bond market. And I've moved uh, basically over to the buy side in 1990, starting on with a, a boutique in in Boston, stayed in Boston until about 1997, and went down to uh, White Plains, New York, to work for Alliance Capital Management, and wound up at Bank of New York thereafter to be back in the city in Midtown, Manhattan, for the longest time, and uh, recently changed over to a uh, smaller firm, M&R Capital Management, to uh, uh, have a little bit more influence on the securities that I'm going to pick here. I would add that uh, I didn't get in this business until I was a little bit older than the typical uh, person who's in it. I was in the Air Force on active duty for 11 years until I was about 32 years of age. And I came back from Japan when I got into this business. And that's part of the reason I was ex- excited about it and interested in it because I was reading what was going on in the stock markets overseas in Asia and it just uh, piqued my interest even more than I already had been piqued. And uh, that's really where I'm coming from. Very good. So just why, on an overall basis, kind of describe the technique you use uh, to pick stocks uh, compared to what other fund managers are using. Well, one of the tools that we use, and I, I think a lot of managers use this tool, are earnings revisions, particularly those made over the last four weeks, and usually off of facts or facts that you can get them going back uh, four weeks, 12 weeks, uh, even longer periods of time. Uh, more recent ones, I think, have more influence, so I really like to take a look at those, see if they're going up or they're going down, because when earnings estimates are going down, that's often indicative of a problem. Um, uh, but I'm looking at earnings growth rates, too, and this, of course, is something that has to be tempered because when the economy slows down, earning growth rates can decline. But you still want to be on a relative basis in those companies where the earnings growth rate are positive, uh, preferably to three- to five-year points. So you're not just looking a year out. You can get these off a first call. So even if the economy is slowing down and earnings are slowing down generally for the overall market, there are still going to be those firms that have positive earnings growth over the intermediate term. Another thing I like to look at is earnings surprises. Earnings surprises tend 
to be reflective of what happened with earnings revision. So I don't know if it's quite as valuable. Uh, I think it may be give you a pop for a few days or may give you an opportunity to get into a stock you really like after your earnings come in, come in a little bit weak. Uh, and that's really it. But we also want to look at a macro level at each uh, uh, industry, and we want to sort of stay with those companies within those industries where we think are a growing industry that may not be quite as economically uh, sensitive uh, uh, as some other ones. For example, we tend to avoid a lot of the commodity-oriented firms, and the reason for that is they have very, very high capital requirements. They may throw off a lot of cash, but they have a lot of capital requirements. And the commodity orientation of things like steel and copper are not attractive to us. So we try to stay with companies that are in growing industries. And we also want companies that are... are in a possibly in a monopolistic or if not monopolistic uh, in a oligarchy where they have sort of an uh, unassailable position. For example, a cable television company, particularly in a state like New Jersey where they have legalized monopolies, they tend to be pretty good. Uh, so we want a company that has a qual- qual- qualitative edge over other companies in its industry either due to market uh, share or simply due to buying power or things of that nature. So that's really what it comes down to. And to put it in a in a, a numbers form, we look, we're a value shop, but we look at growth criteria. The growth criteria are the ones we just uh, uh, discussed, the growth rates of three to five years and the earnings revisions. So, But you, you are using a value criteria. You're not only looking at growth, because if you just looked at growth, the kind of companies you're referring to, which typically sell – at pretty high price-to-earnings ratios. So how do you overlay the earnings growth you just talked about, the earnings revisions, with a value criteria? We want to make sure that the uh, – we'll, we'll, we'll use the peg ratio for that. And we'll look at historic growth rates and we'll look, we'll look at historic PEs, historic growth rates, uh, uh, and try to match those together. So even if a company has uh, a lot of growth going to it, it can be overpriced. Uh, so we'll take a look at where's the stock historically traded. Is its current PE well above what it has historically been, particularly relative to the growth rate that it's currently forecast to have? And if we see something get ahead of itself like that, then we'll back off on it. So, yes, we do want to make sure that we don't overpay for the growth. So you're saying by the peg ratio, this is the price to earnings to the growth rate. Is there a certain limit as to how much – times the growth rate you'll pay is a two times growth or what when do you start getting nervous if the peg ratio gets too high well we want to look at the at the peg ratio for the industry as a whole uh you have to look at the company's competitors so when we uh see one that's really out of whack and then the growth rate does not uh justify such uh, a peg ratio then that'll give us reason for pause so um for example if uh, a stock historically has a growth rate of uh, between one and a half and two and a half, and the industry is one and a half to two, and it's trading at four, a peg of four, that indicates to us that maybe it's getting a little bit ahead of itself. Maybe there's an outlier in the earnings estimates um, that's uh, causing some folks to want to pay that much for it. So we'll back off on it from there. Another thing to look at that I forgot to mention, uh, we, we, we do want to have a company that's growing in sales. We want to have top-line growth. And it's, it's essential to have top-line growth because you can only increase productivity and make more money on declining revenues to a point. 
and after that, your your business is no longer growing. It's probably uh, contracting, and so we try to stay away from that. So in the current environment where we still have economic growth, but at a pretty slow pace, is it harder to find the kind of companies that you're talking about that have good earnings growth, upward revisions, selling at decent multiples? I, I've been able to find several companies that have still had the earnings recently revised upward, and this was done just within the past couple of weeks. For example, Accenture was uh, uh, just given an, an increase in the estimate from 413 to 427, Aflac from 688 to 694. Uh, Visa notwithstanding is very high price from 715 to 7 and a quarter. So uh, they are still out there. The increases versus the increase a year ago may not be as great, but it's still a positive growth rate, and it is up from where it was just four, four or six weeks ago. So they are out there, um, but there are a lot of them that are no longer uh, showing an increase in estimate. They're showing a decrease. For example, one of the ones that um, we're looking at that we that we own, we uh, saw that Google's revision uh, earnings revision was to forty six dollars and forty cents, down from forty nine forty four. That may not sound like a lot, but it's about an eight percent. Uh, downward revision. So perhaps it's priced as high as it's going to be for a while. And we may want to wait a quarter to see how the earnings actually uh, pan out. Do you sell the stocks when the actual earnings come down or when the revisions come down? When do you find that uh, something that you're in, in uh, is the time to sell? Well, we saw that, for example, I'll go back to Google. We saw that the earnings went down, so we took a look at it. But we also looked at the uh, price to earnings ratio, which is trading at 2012 earnings, and see, saw that it is not anything excessive relative to where it was in the past. So, if, for example, at 16.7 times earnings, even if we get $46, we're going to have price somewhere in the neighborhood of the high 700s. So, we're going to go ahead and continue to own that. In other words, that did not cause us to to be too concerned about it. Uh, on the other hand, there are some other stocks in the portfolio that are not coming in as well. We may not put as much money into it or may be fully fully valued. Uh, for example, even though Accenture's earnings were up to by 12 cents for 2013, uh, we have a price of 67.5, and basically our 2013 target, the end of 2013 fiscal year, is still $67. Now, 2014, and I think it is time to start looking at more than a year, then we can see $74 coming out of the stock. But right now, we don't think there's going to be very much change, uh, increase in the, in the price of the stock. Matter of fact, we saw it top out in the very high 60s, low 70s about six weeks ago when they came out with earnings, and we think it's going to be, we think it's going to be flatlined for a while. So we may so not sell it because we still like it, but we're not going, we're not going to be throwing much more money into it. If you can't find stocks that meet your various criteria, will you keep a lot of cash, or do you always stay fully invested? Well, no, we'll go up to 20% cash. If we think the stock market's getting just out of control and and we saw the rapid rally that we had at the beginning of the year, we started to get a little bit concerned. It turned out that we were right when June and July came along. When, along. On the other hand, when the market uh, re-accelerated back in September, August and September, perhaps we shouldn't have had so much cash. That's always a very, very tough thing to do to time the market like that. But we'll go to 20%. Um, we'll never go to 100% cash, obviously, because you cannot uh, win if you're not playing the game, and we fully intend to, to, to play the game. So, But we'll go up to 20% cash, and right now we're sort of in that neighborhood still um, unsure as to what the 
uh, that's going on in Washington, what's going to go on with the dollar, all these other considerations. So we are keeping a fair amount of money uh, ready to go if, uh, if we do get a correction. Is the kind of analysis you're talking about something that the average individual investor can do as far as look at growth criteria and earning surprises and peg ratios, or is it just too difficult? I don't think it's difficult at all. I mean, it's this business we're in is not rocket science, and I, I think there's a tendency for a lot of folks who are um, personal investors investing just for themselves to think that um, the game is rigged against them. It isn't. Most of the information we have is available if you have Charles Schwab or Fidelity or uh, uh, Jeffries or any of those other E-Trade. Uh, you can get this type of data off their website. They'll usually have it for you. And it's really a matter of looking at those criteria that you think are, I think are important, earnings estimate revisions, earnings surprises, revenue growth, positive growth rates, valuations if you want to use a PEG ratio or a historic PE, things of like that. That's all available. And even if one doesn't have all the software, it's easy on Excel. You can actually create a screen and assign weights to these different um, uh, criteria and come up with a, a pure uh, quantitative model to help you pick stock. That doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, read the research reports that are out there, both sell side and buy side, um, to get a little bit better feel for the for the stock, for the company. Uh, but you do have to do this amount of homework. It's just that it's going to take a little bit of time. You are going to have to maybe uh, look for some numbers here. You probably want to read some research reports pretty much in depth to see if there's any large debt coming on, if any debt is coming due, if the cash balances are low. But that's all after the fact of finding those stocks that meet these criteria. You decide that you like those stocks. You decide you want to put money into them. Then you can do some additional research and decide whether yay or nay on that one because of this particular item that's, uh, that, that pertains just to that stock. Very good. Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Paul DeSisto. Uh, he's Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at M&R Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you and your family in debt? Today, over 40% of American households are spending more than they make. And that means our society is getting deeper and deeper in debt. Escape the Debt Trap with host and attorney Kenneth Neely is here to help you avoid the problems involved with debt, including rebuilding credit, filing bankruptcy, short-selling your home, resolving IRS tax problems, and much more. Escape the Debt Trap airs live every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sun Joke All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Paul DeSisto. He's Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at M&R Capital Management. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, tell us the website uh, of M&R Capital Management and what uh, kind of investors do you have and what is your minimum to invest with you? The website's pretty straightforward, uh, www.mrcapco.com, and it'll give a, uh, a reader a rundown of how we invest, uh, the history of the firm. It's been around for just around 19 years. Of course, everybody working here is much older than that. We all came from different companies. Uh, anywhere from uh, uh, Prudential Beige, there's a name out of the past, and Gruntel, um, to uh, Bank of New York uh, and Deutsche Bank. So um, a lot of experience here, uh, small firm, uh, but a lot of personal attention to every account. We're pretty straightforward. Uh, we invest in value stocks, but value stocks that we think offer growth potential, what we like to call strategic value. And you'll see the name of some of the securities that we own, our 10 largest holdings, and you'll see performance data going back over 10 years. And I think it's a, a pretty simple, straightforward uh, uh, website. It'll give you a good feel for what we're trying to do here. And what is the minimum that you will take? Tell me a little bit about the people who invest with your firm. Uh, the range anywhere from 500000 to $20 million, um, we typically have a minimum of $500,000 on a relationship. And you're doing individuals or you do pension funds and institutions as well? We do mostly individuals, but we do have a fair amount of um, uh, institutions. They tend to be charitables, um, and uh, we do those to, uh, in accordance with the wishes of that charity. If the charity has specific strictures or restrictions one way or the other, we'll can accommodate those. Uh, so I would say it's probably about 85% personal and about 15%, uh, about 20%, I'd say, on, on institutions. Very good. Okay, let's kind of take a broad view before we start getting to individual names and industries of what you see happening in the economic environment here. We're about a month before the fiscal cliff. Um, do you think we're going to go over the fiscal cliff? Will there be a, a resolution of this? And how would stocks and bonds react? Either way, if we go over the cliff or if we have a resolution before the cliff. Well, there's a lot of folks on TV and the radio and, and, and the print media talking about what's going to happen, and uh, they hope it's going to uh, be resolved and what they think the chances of anything happening are. So my opinion is no more informed than all these other dozens of opinions anybody can see every day. I hope certainly that it is fixed. If it is not fixed and we do go into sequestration, 
Uh, I don't think it'll be nearly as bad as think, people think. Yes, taxes will go up, but spending will go down, and that will work towards getting these deficits down. Uh, it's going to be a very painful way to do it, indeed, and it's going to be a shock, and there's going to be a short-term reaction, a very negative short-term reaction. Uh, nonetheless, um, uh, I think in longer term it'll actually be a good thing because when our politicians see the shock uh, of what's happening, I think they'll really get off their their chairs and start working towards getting something done here uh, uh, correctly and, and doing something that uh, will be not a quick fix, but something significant. Now, if in the interim, interim they say, well, let's go ahead and just not do anything for three months and we'll keep everything the same until March 31st, not touch the tax rates, not touch the spending, not do any of that stuff, that might be sort of a middle ground that I would hope would happen if they cannot come to a, a resolution between now and December 31st, do a temporary uh, postponement for a quarter or even a half of a year, and really work on it, and then I think things will be okay. If we do go off the fiscal cliff, yeah, there are going to be some uh, – um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? I don't want to sound too much like an alarmist – gyrations of the stock market. Just leave it at that. So how would you plan – let's first of all take that scenario. They do not come to an agreement. We go yeah. over the fiscal cliff. These uh, taxes go up dramatically. The spending gets happen dramatically. How would you play that as far as stocks and bonds if that, in fact, is what's going to happen? Well, I'd go to 20% cash, and this is part of the reason we're staying at 20% cash. Now, this doesn't mean that we think that everything's going to go down, down, down. This is going to give us an opportunity to jump in if things go down temporarily and then go up. So that's one way to do it. Another thing that I'm doing a lot of, and I've been doing a lot now since the end of the third quarter, is I'm writing a lot of covered calls on a lot of my holdings. And the reason I'm doing that is these are companies that I want to own. I want to own for the longer term. Um, but I don't want to ride them down 20 or 25 percent. So if I can uh, sort of take away a little of the discomfort of a declining stock market by writing covered calls, I will. Now, if it gets called away from me, that's okay. I can live with that. I can always buy it back. Another tactic that I'm using here, and again, I'm trying to take advantage of what may be a bad situation. I'm writing cash-covered puts on securities that I want to own but I think are a little bit too expensive. So uh, I do like options in that regard. I use them as a tool to create or uh, adjust my portfolio. I don't use them to speculate. Um, I don't write naked covered calls, uh, uncovered calls. I don't write uh, uh, naked puts. I make sure I have enough cash to cover it. And when I write a put, it's on a company that I do want to own. For example, I want to own McDonald's. They've come back this year from almost $100 to the mid-80s. I think it's a great company. I'm willing to uh, take $3 a share to buy the stock at 80 between now and April. Okay, and so, so that's if, if we do go to the government. What if there is a grand compromise and the fiscal cliff is averted? How would you invest based on that? If, if the fiscal cliff is averted and we're pretty much going to be business as usual or business as what is going on, go back to the, the model criteria that I described earlier in the program and invest in accordance with that. In other words, I'm not doing any fancy-schmancy uh, uh, timing of the market because I think it's a very difficult thing to do. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying 99% of the people can't do it. So I'm going to go back into the market. I'm going to maintain my system that I've been using for all these years that have served me well, and I'm going to invest. Do you think the market might soar? Is there some kind of a, a, a version of a fiscal cliff and some kind of a grand deal? 
I think the market can go considerably higher um, if we can get these fiscal problems behind us. I think the market can go can easily go back well over fourteen thousand dollars where it was in October of uh, of two thousand and seven. There's no reason why it can't go it can't go back there. I mean. The, the current PE of the Standard and Poor's is not even not even 13. It's 12.9. It's averaged over the last 27 years. It's averaged 14.9. So if I get a dollar 13 earnings, which is the latest consensus I have, that indicates the Standard and Poor's can go up considerably from where it is now. So, uh, I, and you have to be in the market to win. If you're going to play and you, you're playing to win, you've got to be in the game. Okay. Let's go to some specific industries and uh, how you think some of them are positioned. One of the ones you have some pretty strong opinions about is the defense industry. Um, yeah. And you're, you're, the, the common view is that there is going to be sequestration. There's going to be a huge amount, $50 billion of cuts in the defense business, business, and the defense stocks are really going to take the brunt of it. Uh, what is your view on the defense industry? Well, and that's that's correct, Jordan. It's, it's fifty billion. It's fifty billion a year for ten years, so it's five hundred billion or half a trillion between now and two thousand two thousand and twenty three. Uh, I look at a macro world view of this. The world is not getting any safer. Uh, the nineties were an aberration where we had the the uh, peace dividend. We saw how long that lasted. Um, we're going to continue to spend money on defense. Even President Obama, when he was having the um, the uh, debates with Governor Romney said the sequestration wasn't going to happen, at least as far as defense. I don't know if a lot of people saw that. I think it was the third debate. It's not going to. It's not going to be as bad as people think it's going to be. Something will be done if it is only for defense. Something is going to be done. And uh, as I said in an article that I wrote uh, some time ago, it, it, these defense programs have very, very long lead times. They don't just cancel. Okay? They, they can be wound down a little bit more quickly, like the F-22 was wound down, but it wasn't canceled. The planes still have to be supported. They still have to build parts. They still have to maintain it. They still have to equip it with weapons. They still have to do pilot training. It's the same thing with all the other aircraft that are currently being built. So from the aircraft point of view, which is an area with which I am familiar, um, I just don't see the danger. Now, there is the concern of the Navy that was discussed that we don't have enough ships. In fact, 12 more ships are being built. Uh, we're going to have 12 more, I should say, than we had six months ago or a year ago. So I think a lot of that is is, is unreasonable fear. Um, so I'm really not that worried about it. So are you, uh, I did look at some earnings. Just, a bargain now? Uh, I don't think they're a bargain. I, I looked at Lockheed. Lockheed's one of my favorite companies because where can you get 5%? <laughs> on a dividend. I mean, that's just a, a gosh darn terrific return, uh, uh, current yield on a stock. You're certainly not going to get it out of any fixed income instrument unless you want to buy junk. And this is not a junk company. They have tremendous cash flow. They throw a lot of cash flow off. The earnings have come down for 2013 from 837 to 820. That is a, a scenario in which defense spending goes down. So if you get a excuse me, typical 11 PE on that, you wind up with around $90. You're a little bit above that now. How badly are you going to get hurt? If you paid 875 what we're looking for in 2014, now you're up to $95, so you make 3 bucks. In the meantime, you're going to get three, you're going to get 5%. Pretty good deal, I think. Now, Boeing's a different situation. 
They're also a very large defense contractor. We've got that huge, huge uh, 787 project going on here. Uh, the earnings on this stock, uh, uh, they have been brought down from 563 to 509 for 2013, but they're still at 631 for 2014. They have a $74 stock that can be hit the mid-90s in a year and a half. So uh, these are two that I like. I specifically like the Boeing for growth. I like the Lockheed for the dividend. And even Boeing is paying you 2.4%. I like being paid while I'm waiting. So I tend to favor, not exclusively, but I tend to favor uh, uh, dividend-paying stocks. And these companies have a pretty good history of paying their dividends, at least over the past uh, 15 years or so. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Paul DeSisto. He's Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at MNR Capital Management. We'll be back after this. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Rivez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Paul DeSisto, Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at MNR Capital Management. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Thank you, Jordan. One of the big uh, things overhanging the market is the potential for dividend tax rates to go up. Uh, currently, they're 15%. Under current law, that would go up to uh, about 43%, including the uh, health care tax as of January 1st. What would be your uh, impression of that, the effect of that on dividend stocks, which you tend to like dividend-oriented stocks? One account that I had I, I, for many, many years, and 
this account was basically millions of dollars of ExxonMobil stock at a cost of about $0.09 cents a share. And the clients have been living off the income from these hundreds of thousands of shares of Exxon all these years. They're not going to sell that because the dividend tax went up. It's just not going to happen, even though they would certainly be the high-income uh, individuals who would be affected of it. I only use that as an example because most people who own dividend-paying stocks are not going to be – not most, I say many of them are not going to be above that $250,000 threshold. And, again, that is only on those amounts of money above 250000 So even if you're a $350,000-a-year uh, uh, income couple, not all of your dividends are going to be affected by that. Moreover, a lot of these dividend-paying stocks are going to be in 401Ks, in IRAs, or traditional pension accounts, defined benefit plans. They're not going to be affected by it. So I think the concern over that is a little bit overwrought. Um, the dividend stocks have taken a major hit out of fear of this, though. Whether, no matter how, where they're held, the stocks well, have, they have could, taken a big yeah, hit. They could take a hit, and then as long as Bernanke's going to keep our interest rates on the short end at uh, a few basis points, people are going to go back to them. This is the way I feel, because there is not going to be any advantage to doing anything else. They're still going to have the advantage of dividends, at least for those uh, uh, those. Those defined benefit plans and pension accounts and, and IRAs and things like that. So yeah, there'll be a little bit of a problem there. There'll be some people who get a little bit frightened and sell. And we've seen that simply by looking at what's happened with dividends over the past uh, couple of weeks. Has been dividend payouts, special dividends. Uh, Walmart had, uh, pushed their dividend up to December as opposed to January to avoid that and things of that nature. So yeah, it's just going to have an adverse effect. I don't just don't think this is going to be as bad as as a lot of people fear because it's still going to be a good investment. If you're at Lockheed and you're getting 5% and you wind up with 3.25% after you pay tax on it, that's still a pretty, a pretty good return. And, again, it's not going to be every – not all of these people who are getting these dividends are going to be – the stocks are going to be in taxable accounts. They're going to be in tax-exempt or tax-deferred accounts. Now, there was a thing on television this morning which kind of concerned me. There was talk about – and it's only a speculation that – the government here will pull in Argentina. What is that? Well, they went ahead and they actually took control down in Argentina of people's pensions accounts. And the idea here is not that they would do that, but that they would make the uh, tax deferral of income and dividends or the, and the tax deductibility uh, using pre-tax dollars into 401Ks. They would do away with that as one of the tax expenditures to, uh, to address the deficit. I don't think that's going to happen. If that were to happen, then I would really be concerned, but not just the increased uh, tax rate on dividends. Okay, let's go to some of the industries where you like stocks and kind of explain why you would like them. Uh, one of the industries is the uh, media business. Uh, what do you like about the media business, and what are some of the particular names that you like there? I like media because a lot of these media companies, they've got a lock on their market. And uh, two that I own are Comcast and Time Warner. Um, they're in big markets. Time Warner's in New York City. Um, they're really sort of in unassailable positions. They're almost sort of like legalized monopolies, if you look at it that way. Uh, in my state of New Jersey, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Cablevision is a legalized monopoly because we don't have any of the other cable companies coming in to offer competition. You do have, of course, the satellite as well as a competitor. So I like them for that reason. They have tremendous amount of cash flow. Uh, there is some capital expenditures in keeping up the grid and all that sort of thing. 
but they have great cash flow. They have dividends that, that go up every year. Uh, so I like them. Um, a company like News Corp, I like. They're getting all of their uh, money in a different way. They're getting it from licensing fees and so forth and things like that. And uh, uh, News Corp in particular I like because they're going to get rid of that, or spin off, I should say, that publishing division, which has really been a drag on them. And uh, after that split takes place, I think the stock can take off and go from the mid-20s to the early 30s. So those are companies I like, and those are really the reasons I like them. It's not exactly media, but it's close to media. Google is another company you like. Why do you like Google? I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but about 35 years ago when uh, office copiers came into being, if uh, somebody wanted somebody to make a copy of something, they would say, hey, Xerox this for me. Now when you want to look something up in the Internet or you're told to look something up in the Internet, they say, Google this for me. They've got 85% of the search, 85%. That is an a advantage that you just cannot, one cannot dismiss that. So I like that for that reason alone. Um, they're going to do some other things too. I mean, this deal they have with the Android and the smartphones is very, very good. Um, that's another way of growth for them. I noticed that they did drop $3 off the earnings. I still have $775 price target for the stock, and if I go from my $46 to $53 in 2014, the stock can, the stock can easily go into the 800s. I think you have to own Google. Now, for the same reason, I think you have to own Apple because they're going after each other in this smartphone area. I don't know who's going to win. I think there are going to be two winners, possibly. It doesn't have to be just one. And we see who's losing. We know that RIM is losing. We know that Nokia is losing. So um, if you're going to be in the industry, you should be in the leading players, number one or number two in that industry, not number three or number four, these other companies that are really trailing because it's just not going to do you any good. Another area you like is financial services uh, and, that's, and financial technology. What are some of the plays there? The, the banks have had pretty volatile time here, and there's a lot of Dodd-Frank regulation coming at them. What, what do you like in financial services? Well, I, actually, I, I do like the banks. I think that the banks have been beaten down. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I think we've seen the banks coming back. We've seen increases in the prices of, uh, of the Bank of America and J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo. I think these banks are coming back, and they're the traditional banks. Uh, Dodd-Frank will be watered down. Uh, I'm sure it will be watered down because the uh, banks are going to speak to their uh, folks in Congress and say, I want you to water this down. And uh, I'm not saying which political party they're in because they're in both political parties. I'm not going to make this into a political thing. Uh, there are too many uh, congressmen and senators who have large corporations that are involved in finance and that are their constituents, and they're going to tell these people to water this down. Now, then you have the other side of the, of the finance. You have the financial technology, and basically what's going on is people are paying bills with their smartphones now. Visa and MasterCard are the two leaders in this. Um, I think they're great companies. Visa's have gotten a little ahead of itself, I'll tell you, on price. Um, the earnings are seven and a quarter. It really hasn't gone up or down over the last few weeks. Target price in 2013, $148. We're just about there now. I think the price is, I think it's overbought. I think the stock should be bought below 125. In 2014, I'm looking for $1.67 based on $8.35 of earnings per share. So I think it's a great company. 
If you want to be in a company that does sort of the same thing, but not exactly, but pays a dividend, American Express, again, another company that's gotten a little ahead of itself, good company to own, uh, buy it a little bit cheaper, maybe uh, write some put options on it, get it for five bucks less than where it is. Uh, but I think that's what's going to be happening with uh, people paying stuff. They're going to be paying things, buying things on their mobile phones. I mean, buying things on the Internet is becoming passe. You do it on your smartphone. Okay, another area you like is pharmaceutical companies. Now, a lot of these companies have uh, patent cliffs where their big drugs are expiring, uh, mm-hmm. but you still like some money. What is your, your play in the drug and pharmaceutical area? We, we know about, you're exactly right, Jordan. We know about the Lipitor and things like that, losing their protection and all that, but you're going to see continue, I think we're going to see continued consolidation within the industry. I think with, however, the Affordable Care Act unwinds, I think that these companies are going to um, be companies that are able to take advantage of it. I think they're going to be helped because simply more people are going to have access to what these companies have to offer. Um, so, they're going, to, they're going to continue to uh, increase their productivity. Uh, they're going to close plants where they're not making any money. They're going to consolidate and lower their costs. They're going to continue to make money through revenue, through uh, through scale. I just think they're good companies. They were beaten down over the last few years because of fears about health care. I think now that we've gotten that issue behind us and that we have some sort of direction, that we know what the law of the land is, I think they'll take advantage of it. I think they'll be out by it. And what are some of your favorites in uh, pharmaceuticals? I love both Merck and Pfizer because they're going to pay me to wait. Um, I think they have pretty good uh, uh, scientists working there to uh, make sure that they continue to create new drugs. Uh, it is a slow process. We know how hard it is to get things through the FDA, <laughs> but I think it's a fine uh, couple of fine companies to be in there. If one goes, one wants to go for more purely a dividend play, I think Bristol Myers looks very, very good. It pays well. Uh, if you want to go overseas and get some non-U.S. Uh, companies, I like uh, I like Glaxo and I like Sanofi Aventis. And how about in the generic area? Do you like anything in generic drugs? Uh, we are buying Teva. Uh, it hasn't done anything for us about the past year. I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, I think they will eventually get more and more market share if they're able to buy these, uh, create these drugs um, as they come off of protection. Uh, that's where we're standing right there. Another one to look at is Elon, uh, if one uh, wants another name in that uh, in that area. So basically you're saying the Affordable Care Act is more positive than negative for them because it's going to increase demand. I think at the end of the day, it's simply because we're getting rid of some of that uncertainty that has, has been bottling people up over the past couple of three years with the, the Supreme Court the, the talking about it and passing judgment on it, the election and all that. Now we have some direction. And as we all know, stock market does not like uncertainty, and that was a very, very uh, great amount of uncertainty that was causing. And it's passed now. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, after we come back, we're going to talk about the bond market a little bit and where to invest your money to earn uh, decent yields now that you can basically earn nothing on your money in the bank. Uh, my guest this hour is Paul DeSisto. He's Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at m Capital Management. And we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Paul DeSisto. He's Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at m Capital Management in New York. Welcome back to the show, Paul. Thank you, Jordan. We want to talk about the bond market a little bit. Uh, people are very unhappy with what they're getting in money market funds and CDs and treasury bills, basically zero. What are some alternatives uh, for people who don't want to take a lot of risk but still want to earn a higher yield? If you're going to get anything better than a cash return, you're going to have to take a little bit of risk. We have to establish that right off the bat. Now, that doesn't mean it's a lot of risk. I think there's a lot of opportunity if one wants to be super safe, Buy five to eight year corporate paper, get the, the good stuff, the single A, double A stuff. You're going to make 2% as opposed to 1.2, but you're going to get a little bit more money. If that's not enough, stick your neck on a little bit more. Get some high end, uh, junk bonds or high yield. I use the word junk because I don't want there to be any question as to what I'm talking about here. You get some pretty decent double AA, A, double A plus stuff, which is just below investment grade. You can get that through an exchange-traded fund, and you can get yourself darn near 5%. Um, I would stick with an ETF that does short-term, uh, goes out no more than five years or six years, because I am very concerned about what's going to happen with um, interest rates uh, over the next few years. They can't stay this low forever. We've had a 32-year bull market in bonds, a secular bull market, beginning in 1981. This cannot go on forever because nothing goes on forever, and it cannot go on forever because we can't get any lower than zero. There's only one way for rates to go, and that's to go up. So I like some of the spread product, which is what we call corporate paper. I prefer the lower quality, either the lower quality investment grade, the triple B, triple B minus, or the higher quality high yield, the double B, 
double B plus. And I think that's really where you want to get your money. Keep it five to seven years. Anything less than, than five years, you're not going to get paid much. Anything more than seven years, you're going to have to start worrying about what's going to happen to your principal when interest rates do go up. If interest rates do go up, you can have all this stuff is going to be coming due. If you buy the individual bonds, you can reinvest at higher rates. So that's one thing that I would do. Another thing that I think folks but just willing to well, do for a second though, just tell me the names of some of the ETFs you were referring to there that do that medium-term bonds. What are some of the ETFs that would accomplish that? Well, iShares has a short-term corporate bond fund. I think it's SJNK, um, uh, which is also PIMCO has one too, and they were the PIMCO one was highlighted in Forbes about three uh, three months ago. Uh, so I would go on the iShares uh, website or the PIMCO website, and I would look and see what they have there. They have longer-term longer, longer term ETFs as well, but they, they both specifically have a short-term junk bond fund, which I think are very, very attractive. And how about an overseas uh, funds? What, what would you like in overseas debt-oriented funds? I think one should be willing to get uh, by – Corporate, uh, not necessarily just corporate, sovereign. I, I like right now the sovereigns issued by the governments of these emerging markets. That's where I would go first because they are backed by the full faith and credit of these governments. We know what happened in the 90s. We had those liquidity issues like in South Korea and so forth. Those weren't solvency issues. Those were liquidity issues. Nonetheless, it was uh, not a good time to be in those, uh, in those uh, bonds. It seems to me that these governments have sort of gotten their act together, and um, their amount of debt relative to GDP for a lot of the emerging markets is averages like 40%. And if you look at the developed world, it's like 100% or 125%. So they've, they're growing economies. Because their economies are growing, their debt as a percentage of GDP is not growing anywhere near like it is growing here. So they actually have better interest rate coverage with their taxes on their bonds than Europe and the United States has. So, I think so you would, you would prefer, so you would prefer the emerging market bonds as opposed to European and more developed yes, country correct. bonds? Yes. I like the uh, PowerShares Global Exchange Traded Fund for Emerging Markets, symbol is PCY. Um, uh, I think it's a good fund. Now, it's gotten pricey as well because simply because interest rates have gone down, and it's a quality investment, so it's gone up considerably. Um, one should not put all of their money into these things because if we do have a backup in rates, uh, you're going to have a chance to get these things cheaper. But right now, I think that the uh, PowerShares Global Exchange Traded Fund is a good one, and I think you would complement it with the SJNK that I mentioned earlier, the short-term high-yield bond fund. And you can get around 5% out of these things. Uh, that's a good way to start. Now, the newest thing is um, that people are buying, not necessarily the newest, but something later than the dollar-denominated uh, fund are the local currency-denominated sovereign paper. This gives you the opportunity or the, the danger of exchange uh, rates. If the dollar goes down, you're going to make a lot of money in dollars. If the dollar goes up, you can be hurt. We understand that. If the currencies of these emerging markets go down, that's a different chance. That's a chance that you take. <laughs> what you can do there, if that concerns you, stick with the dollar-denominated ones. So do you uh, think the, the dollar is going to go up or down? How would you play that? I don't see how the dollar can go up. I just don't see how it can. I mean, with these with these deficits we have, and with the printing of money, it has to go down. And that's another reason why people should have two to five percent of their portfolio in gold or gold-related shares. Uh, 
Uh, and we didn't mention that earlier, but I am concerned about what's happening to the dollar. I just don't see it getting stronger. Uh, the economy is just doing very, very poorly. And it seems like a lot of the growth is overseas in the emerging markets. All right, so let's go talk to the, about the stock market a little bit overseas. Uh, what are some of the international stocks that you would like uh, that are uh, around the world? I love sin stocks and um, because people can't get enough of them or they can't get enough of their products. So I like Diageo and I like Heineken. Diageo is making uh, – they, they make spirits. They're that uh, UK-listed company. They own Johnny Walker and a bunch of other um, high-end uh, spirits. They're making a 50% purchase for a very large Indian spirits company. I mean, they're aggressive. They want the growth. They'll go all over the world and get it, and they know how to package. Uh, so I like Diageo. They're also going to pay you a nice 3% dividend. And I like Heineken uh, for a beer company. The reason I like Heineken is they actually have less exposure than some of the other big companies like like uh, SAB Miller um, and Anheuser InBev to emerging markets. So I think Heineken has more chance for growth in some of the emerging markets. So those are a couple of overseas stocks that I like. Uh, like I said, they're SIN stocks. I think they're good SINs uh, because they're going to make you a lot of money over the, over the long term. Um, another company I like, it's not – it's actually a U.S. company, but most of the business is done overseas is Aflac. Everybody knows them from their commercials where they have the duck, and they basically do cancer policies in, in Japan. In Japan, they call cancer, the word for cancer is GAN, G-A-N. There's a great fear of it there, and uh, there's a lot of business being made there. They've been there for decades. They're making a lot of money doing it, and I love the, the earnings outlook for them uh, going forward. Um, looking for uh, six dollars and ninety-four cents a share, can go up to fifty-four dollars, which isn't much over the fifty-one it's at now. But looking next year, when I get almost eight dollars a share, it's a sixty-dollar stock, easily sixty-two, uh, and they're going to pay you two point seven percent to wait. So those are those are some that I like overseas stocks. Uh, there are also a couple of um, ones that may be a little bit not on people's radar screen, but I like a lot. I like Toyota, and I think Toyota is a stock that anybody should be able to buy in the mid to high 70s. They're going to pay almost 2%, and uh, right now the stock should be in the in the uh, low 80s. I, I just think it's a terrific company that um, just seems to have the marketing down, and we had a good opportunity to buy them when we had the the big flood in Japan a year and a half ago. And then, of course, one remember, may recall that they had the recalls because of the sticking gas uh, pedals. And when things like that happen, obviously it's not good news, but that's when you buy these. You buy these when they're beaten down. I notice the stock is up a dollar three today to 86.64. Um, I just think it's a great company. They beat the heck out of the earnings estimates. Uh, easily um, over the last. So, so you, you were buying them when the bad news was hitting. Yes. So yes, that's that, that's that's the value that you're creating. You're saying when it, when it gets below its growth rate. Yes. Right. When people are afraid to buy it because of the situation with the supply, because of the tsunami, or the, because of the recalls, when people are afraid to buy it, that's uh, that's that's when you buy it. I mean. Uh, it's just a good opportunity. One has to be willing to, to be following the market and to take advantage when these things happen. So, Very for good. example, the last quarter, they came out with $2.06 a share versus $1.72. Uh, that's just a, a, a great, a great, that's a great surprise, and I love those, those positive surprises. 
Very good. Okay, well, thanks so much. Uh, my guest this hour has been Paul DeSisto. Uh, he's Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at MR Capital Management. Uh, the firm's website is mrcapco.com. And thanks so much for being on the Money Answer Show, Paul. Thank you for inviting me, Jordan. Thank you again, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.